Welcome to Morning Devotion with Ken Gurley. Devotions designed to inspire you on your daily walk with God. Here's your host, Ken Gurley. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Morning Devotion. Thank you. Thank you, Corey and Brendan, Trenton and Angie and Susan. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of this each and every morning. You make it special. You make this an oasis during an amazing, amazingly different, unusual season. What strength we get drawing strength from one another, sharing in this time together. Good morning. We welcome you. Thank you, Sterling and Todd and Debbie and Francis. Thank you for being here. I do welcome you on this Wednesday morning. November the 18th, and just believing that good things are going to happen. You know the drill. Follow the page, like the page, share the page, and loop more into this. Thankful for each and every one of you. What a day. What a great day. The flat line is not the finish line. We're getting ready for our national and spiritual comeback. Can I get a witness to that? Amen. Amen. I do want to underscore yesterday. Just a moment to underscore for those that are just now joining. If you didn't listen to yesterday's devotion at some point today, would you please go back and do so? The return of the remnant is an important theme that God has laid on my heart. You're going to hear me revisit it again and again and again in the weeks and months ahead. You're going to hear a lot more of that in the future. Here we are. Governors nationwide are telling us, go back. Virus running rampant. Hide away again. Hide away. What an ordeal. What an ordeal this has been. But this has been an oasis for us during this season. Thank you for making it all that it is. What a day. What a great day that we have planned for you. What the Lord has laid on my heart early this morning, I just feel like sharing with you. I read a a recent opinion, or I read recently of an opinion by a, a preacher that has now gone on his reward. It's not of our faith. And, um, well, per se, I guess, uh, the church, as we know it, he said, would not exist by the time we got to the 21st century. Well, I, I guess we're here. In all fairness, um, I don't want to be unfair to this gentleman. I, I don't know a lot about him. But, but in a sense, this world is changing, and maybe the church is changing, too. And we need to get back to some of the premises of what works so well for the church in the book of Acts. Amen. Can I get a witness to that? Kim and Kimmy and Brenda, Ernesto. Yeah. Let's get back to the book of Acts because we sense the world is changing around us and we need some things that will not change. And I believe that is found in the book of Acts, not only the doctrines, but some of the methodology, some of the practices that continued in fellowship. And there was some strength there, small groups that were proliferating across uh, the world and getting together on the first day of the week and then all throughout the week in homes. I just believe that's apostolic. Uh, but could I describe for you a minute, I, I described it in the book on prayer, the cultural decline of this nation, of the Western world, the flatlining of the culture. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I believe it's important. Beginning in the late 60s, we saw the decline, the dissolution of marriage, injustices reached a boiling point, it was anti-war, anti-God, anti-country, drug wars began, culture developed of 
turn on, tune out, and and yeah, it was a pretty rough time. The solutions proposed did little to resolve the issue. The policies of the so-called Great Society uh, had an indirect effect, an unintended consequence, made marriage less important. Huge swaths of our American population grew up without dads. Fatherlessness is a curse of our nation. You don't need me to document the national decline. We've all seen it. We've experienced, been affected by it. Amen. We've seen it. Our society has been compared to that of the Roman Empire. Indeed, in Daniel's vision, he saw that as the last kingdom, the resurgence of the old Roman Empire. And that brings a lot of concern to me with seeing what's happening in Europe in January or meeting of the globalists and technocrats to reshape our world. I might share more about that later in the week. But there's some similarities to America's decline, to Rome's decline, godlessness, hedonistic, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It's a curious phenomenon noticed in the ancient Roman Empire. They used copious amounts of lead. And for centuries, the Roman Empire mined and smelted many, many, many tons of lead. Lead was soft, easily shaped. They used it for medicines, cosmetics, utensils, all sorts of things. The pipes carrying running water in and out of the homes of the wealthy of the empire were made of lead. The cisterns are, the cisterns are holding uh, tanks for water lined with lead. But the Romans didn't understand that the metal was toxic and drinking from lead containers brought death. And some historians believe that the fall of Rome can partially be traced to the abundant use of lead, stillbirths, deformity, brain damage, sterility, all traced to the lead in their diet. That each time a Roman drank from a wine goblet, he drank not only the wine, but the molecules of lead hidden in that wine. Each time he sipped from a fountain of water, he drank toxins and poison. I believe that's an apt metaphor, folks, for worldliness, how deadly it is, and that we're saturated in worldliness. The spirit of the age is one of worldliness. It's pervasive. It's invasive. It permeates. It infiltrates. It affects our thinking, our feeling, our talking, our behaving, our dressing, our living. Worldliness defines, of course, everything around us. It's not just how a person looks, although it's that too. It's what systems of belief do they hold? What is their paradigms, perspective? What thoughts are allowed to go in their heart? Worldliness caters to the flesh, not the will of God. Worldliness hails back to the Garden of Eden. When Eve saw the fruit, the fruit was beautiful, good to eat, would make one wise. Worldliness today is marked with materialism, secular humanism, its headiness, its high-mindedness. It's seen in the ancient attempt to reach heavens through the Tower of Babel. It's the Epicurean, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's the vain philosophy of this world. And it caters to the flesh and to the mind. It's opposed to the godly. It's a culture gone bad. You see, we live in a culture of defection. The laws of God are being abandoned. The nation which is great, Psalm 33, is one whose God is the Lord. The nation which is great, Proverbs 14, is the one in whose people are righteous. Lady Liberty is welcoming the masses to the nation, but to a nation that no longer serves God as she once did. A nation which has lost her ability to pray and her ability to blush. We live in a culture of defection. We live in a culture of affectation. 
that each person is taught to imitate the heroes of the world. Like Dinah, Jacob's daughter, who went out to see the fashion of the land. People are just caught up with the look of the world, the look of what is supposed to be. The look is of a greater importance than substance or character. As long as you've got the right image, who cares who you are? That's worldliness that we live in. We live in a culture of not only affectation, but we live in a culture of infection. Human life is devalued, abortion, assisted suicide, violence, racism, sexual purity is mocked, even gender is questioned. How God made us is inconsequential, the world says. Yeah, traditional values are being destroyed, family breakup, dishonesty, gambling, materialism, sound government. Oh, my. Uh, Courts without justice, lawmakers without wisdom, leaders without principles. Biblical heritage is denounced. Truth has become relative. Faith is trivialized. And the existence of God is debated and even rejected by our modern age. No wonder John said, love not the world. It's an enmity with God. Our God is a jealous God. You'll either love him with all of your heart or you're going to love the world. You can't have it both ways. And this is where I think the church is so important. We can't pat ourselves on the back and say, well, at least the world is sicker than the church. Well, the world should be sicker than the church. In fact, the contrast is even greater than that. The world, according to the Bible, is in darkness and they suffer from spiritual death. But the church is not to be in twilight or less darkness. We're to be the light and to walk in the light. We've been given life that John said is the light of men. So to say, well, at least we in the church are not quite off, as bad off as those of the world. Well, that's more of an indictment against the church than it is the world. We've got a dying world a flatline nation, and we have a sick church. The church has gotten sick because she's lost her distinction to walk in the light as he is in the light. You remember that old poem of the world tempting the church to walk by its side? Uh, I, I don't have time to go through the whole poem, but one temptation follows another, then finally the church gives in. And, and we read that little stanza in the poem. Then the sons of the world and the sons of the church walked closely hand in hand, and only the master who knoweth all could tell the two apart. Yeah, we've got a sick church and we've got a flatline nation, and what do we do about it? I told you yesterday there, there'll always be a remnant, and it's time for the remnant to return. It's time for the remnant to come back. It's time for the remnant to get the fires going because always from the remnant comes the restoration. Always from those faithful ones around God's throne comes the awakening. From those individuals will emerge the comeback. And then we'll see that the flat line is not the finish line. I want to give you a passage of scripture to give you hope today. It's found in the third Psalm written by David, but it's the first Psalm that has two noteworthy characteristics. In Psalm 3, we see the first superscription. Those are the little tiny words right below the number. And we see that it was the Psalm of David. And then we see when David wrote that Psalm. It says, when he fled from his son, Absalom. Absalom was the most handsome man in David's kingdom. That's what 2 Samuel 14 tells us. He was the most handsome man in the then known world. He was also David's third-born son, who had a problem with David's firstborn son, Amnon. You see, Amnon was Absalom's half-brother, and Amnon raped 
Absalom's sister, Tamar. And David did nothing to punish Amnon, nothing to avenge Tamar. And Absalom's hatred boiled over, and just as Cain slew his brother Abel, Absalom killed his half-brother Amnon. Yeah, it was a messed up family. He hid from David for three years, but David inexplicably let him come home without consequence, and Absalom promptly focused his attention on turning the people against David. That is the occasion for the third psalm being written when a coup had taken place and a son had overthrown his father and David ran with all of his might away from Absalom, away from the city of David, away from his kingship, away from Jerusalem. Absalom was wrong, but David was not right. Oh, stop and think about that. Absalom was wrong, but David was not right either. Folks, we're living in a world that has gone wrong. It's wrong. But I can't say, and I've looked in my heart, and I'm not speaking of others, I'm speaking of myself. Am I am I right in everything I do? Am I righteous in what I've done? Or have I failed to be the light that I need to be in this present day? The world is wrong, but we in the church are not quite right either. But God is so merciful. And God is so gracious and God is so kind and he is so long suffering that when Absalom and the world plot our destruction, when they shout saying it's flat line, it's the finish line, David writes a psalm, the third psalm. And here's the second curious thing about this psalm that's found throughout the Psalms. Three times in Psalm three, we see the word Selah. Yeah. First in verse two, many there Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. You think about that verse a moment. David described the encounter when he was running for his life, and he saw the hopelessness on everybody's face, and he could see their speech. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. They believe that word means a pause. It's a flat line. David said, many are saying, I'm gone. They're pronouncing doom and gloom and destruction, that it is the end of my life. That was the assessment. That was the common assessment of David. There was no hope for him. And you know, I see that in people's faces today. I I, I read what they think in the media and and on social media posts uh, that we're at the end of it all, that this thing is not going to go out with a bang, but with a whimper, not with a shout, but with a sigh. And they say of America and they say of the modern church, see law, flatline. But can I tell you, the song is not over and the story is not yet finished. Psalm 3 does not end at verse 2. David looked and saw others despair. He heard the majority opinion. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no hope for him and God. But he sought another opinion in verse three. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me out of his holy hill. And here we go again. Salah. And that's what we witness here. It's the second pause, the second Salah, the second stop, the second flat line. And David is saying, what you are interpreting is my flat line, the end of it all. I see something else happening here. I see the death of despair. 
I see last rites given to hopelessness. Uh, It's the imperfect David who had a heart for God that turned to God and said, God, help me. God, help me. I've gotten myself into a mess. I'm trapped in a world whirlpool of worldliness and a vortex of victimhood. Help me, God. I flatlined. Everybody said it's over. A code blue is called, but the crash cart is coming in and all of heaven is coming down. And here we start seeing the rest and the strength and the assurance is restored. And we start hearing David say, though 10,000s of people and a myriad of opponents rise up uh, and say, it's over, but God is here and God is going to help me. And then comes the third and final usage of the Selah in Psalm 3. And this is our hope when David shouts, salvation belongs to God and his blessing is upon his people. Selah. Can I just tell you something in morning devotion today? Our life, our future, our legacy, our health, our welfare, it all belongs to God. This nation belongs to God. This church belongs to him. He purchased it with his own blood and God's blessing is going to be on his remnant, upon his people. And my hope is not in America. My hope is not in Madison Avenue, Pennsylvania Avenue, Rodeo Boulevard. My hope is in God and the remnant of God's people that are going to cry out to him. When they read and hear the majority report says it's flatline, it is over, and we are going to cry out to God and we're going to see the same comeback that David saw. David experienced a comeback. Absalom fell and David rose from the ashes uh, and the kingdom was restored uh, and the flat line was not the finish line. Uh, There is a comeback within our nation. That comeback uh, is not going to be found in a recount, in a polling booth, in a court of law. It's going to be found at the altars of praying people. It will be the remnant who brings a restoration to this nation. People of faith like David, who can turn to God and say, I believe you've got a different report. I wish you would just share this with someone, someone that's discouraged, someone that's so distraught right now. This is what I sense, and I sense this with all of my heart. Yes, I'm concerned about our nation. Yes, I see great problems coming to our nation, but I still believe As I said in the book on prayer, our country is going to see one final awakening in a certain sense. I believe it's already happening. We're just not aware of the extensiveness of it. But the roots uh, have already gone down deep and tapped into the hand and might of God. It's beginning to germinate and blossom. We're going to see it. uh, But for now, we're hearing reports that everything's flatlined. Right now, we're saying we're hearing Salah. It's a pause. Get your last rites ready. This nation is over. The church is going down. But I just say it's a pause. It's not the flat line. It's not the finish line. We're just in an interlude between darkness and light. We're in that brief hold between the outgoing and the incoming tide. Don't get to the end of the sentence uh, and says uh, there is no help for him and God and leave it there. Don't you just leave it there, but put a law and say to my eyes, it may look like it's over.
To my flesh, it may appear like it's over. I'm hearing the majority report saying it is all over. God, I'm hearing what they are saying, but Lord, what are you saying? And you're going to hear him say the flat line is not the finish line. There is a comeback coming. When David came to power the first time, he was surrounded by mighty men, 300 of them. When David was restored to his rightful position, again, he was surrounded by mighty men. We need a company of people. Every church needs a company of people. Every family needs a company of people, a remnant who knows how to storm the gates of hell, who can say it's not over, it's not over, it's not finished. There is one last awakening in our nation, in our world. Saints of God, we ought to pray like we've never prayed. In fact, this Sunday night, we're planning just a special prayer meeting to fight off spiritual malaise and darkness. We see coming on this world and nation. We want to see God pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And we want that to happen now. We want it to happen here. We know the remnant's going to make it happen. May God pour out his spirit upon your family. May God's power fall in your city, in your county, in your parish, in your state, in your nation, in your province, in our world. There have been way too many false pronouncements over your loved ones saying they'll never be saved. They'll never come back. I just say that flat line is not the finish line. There've been some false prophecies over you that you're too scarred, too messed up, too far gone. Yes, the voice of the multitude is always one of fear and doubt, but whose report will you believe? I believe the flat line is not the finish line. I am preparing for the greatest awakening this nation has ever seen. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, I wish you would just grow this remnant. I wish you would grow it in your sphere of influence. Share this, follow this, and let's just see God do something in our midst. I know, I know the needs are great, but we've got each other and we've got God. And we're saying, you hear the world's pronouncements, Lord, but we believe there shall be light in the evening time. And this flat line is not the finish line. And we're coming forward and we're going to see great things happen. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of Morning Devotion. Go have a wonderful day. Share this with others in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Morning Devotion with Ken Gurley. Join us next time for another inspiring devotion. To support this ministry, please visit firstchurch.com forward slash give.